Boker Tov, and good morning. This is Rabbi Tommy Davies Hart with the commentary on today's Parashah number 20, Tetzaveh. If you have any questions or comments, please visit our website at rabdavis.org. So let's get started. With the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle complete, the Torah moves on to those who will carry out the process of sacrifices and the daily activities within it. Where Moshe was not directly involved in the construction of the tabernacle, but was told what to tell the people of Israel, he now becomes an intimate part of preparing his brother, Aharon, and his descendants to inherit the perpetual priesthood. And in the Tanakh, it does not say, you don't see a term, Levitical priesthood. You don't see that. But it's sort of implied because Aharon, of course, was a Levite and his sons were to be, um, to be consecrated uh, for, as a Kohanim, for God. So what I drew over here was just a sort of a, it's a roundabout, it's like a loop in a computer program. We had the heavenly tabernacle that was always, all right, in existence, and then the earthly tabernacle was formed. Now that, again, was not a prototype, it was an antitype of something that was already in heaven. And then we had the priesthood. When you go back in this plot of shot, you see that scarlet and purple and blue and finely wore linen throughout all of those things. All right, so you see it in the tabernacle, you see it in the garments of the priest. And then, that, that L stands for Levitical, just to let you know. And then the common man, all right, the M I put, Mechizeldekian priesthood, the new priesthood. So when people flippantly go around saying our bodies are a temple, I don't think they really get it. We are to be examples of how God wants us to live. And he had very strict rules, and he still has very strict rules and commands. We can't just do it willy-nilly. Right? So this kind of shows how it goes around. And you'll notice that there are four aspects here, the heaven, the earthly, the uh, priesthood, and then the new priesthood of which we are a part. Four is the number for earthly perfection. Four chambers of the heart, four limbs, four general directions, although there are, are more in Kabbalah, all right? Four seasons, that sort of thing. So it's interesting that we have this completion, this complete cycle of the priesthood. So we need to take our role very seriously, very seriously. I had an example I shared with uh, Joe this week uh, in that this man who professes to be a Christian, right? Um, did something that was very, very unprofessional by just uh, wanting to call in and not see his patients that day. You can't do that. When you're a doctor and you're in an office and you have patients, you need to see them. You can't come, you know, not come just because you're tired. So he had an obligation. He did not set in a good example for everyone else in the office because they look up to him as the director of that office. So what does that tell you? A man who wears his Christianity on his sleeve all the time, what's the first thing that's going to come into their mind? Well, if that's what being a Christian is like, I don't want to be a Christian. Right? We're not Christians, but the concept is the same, the idea. We need to do what we're going to say, what we say we're going to do, and we need to glorify God in all we do. So we start with this absolute purity of the oil for the menorah. I have studies on this that I've already got on the website that talk about this crushing versus pounding and all of this of the olive oil. And this sets the proper precedent 
that like then, our service must be done with a pure heart, untainted with any personal agenda for gain or stinginess. We can't say, I've done this or that for God. Why didn't you give me this or that? Or God, I'll do this or that if you give me this or that. And we find that concept of purity in the difference between pounding something and crushing something. All right? Because when you crush something up, you have sediment. That sediment represents selfishness and agendas that are not of God. All right? According to the Kumash, which is the Jewish commentary on the Torah, only the first drop was used. Then the rest of the olive could be crushed and the remaining oil used in the meal offerings. Right? The four sons of Aharon are named because they were the only ones who initially be anointed as Kohanim. Any children born to them would automatically be Kohanim. Any of Aharon's grandsons, such as Phineas, would remain Levites. But uh, later on Phineas, when we read more about Phineas, he was appointed as a Kohen and an Omite. Right? That's why it was special. It might seem this was the first designation of a priesthood by God, but this isn't the case. Recall that initially the whole nation of Israel was called. That's in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. The establishment of the nation as a kingdom of priests was to be accomplished through the sanctification of all the firstborn male. But it was commanded first, just after the death of the Egyptian firstborn at the time of the Exodus. The replacement of the firstborn as a nation of priests with the Levites begs the question, why? Well, in Exodus 19.5, we discover the privilege of being a kingdom of priests dependent on why. Here we go, the if-then condition, obedience to the covenant, just as us being included in the new priesthood described in 1 Peter 2.9 depends on our obedience to God's Torah. There is no free lunch. Exodus 32 records the breaking of the covenant when the nation worshipped the golden calf. Remember that? This act abolished their privileged position as a kingdom of priests. Instead, when Moshe said, that's why they came to me, here am I, choose me, I'm ready to serve you. Who's on the Lord's side, let him come unto me? It was the sons of Levi. That's, that's the only ones that stepped up. They gathered themselves unto him. And then they were told to go out and kill 3,000 who continued to rebel. That included other members of their clan. Tomim, T-O-M, I put in parentheses, thought to represent light and completeness. Tom, is that T-O-M, I have in parentheses on your paper. Also called the instrument of decision. This was a device used for obtaining God's decision or judgment on important questions on which human judgment was too difficult to make. And I have this little thing here. This is just kind of a little light note, okay? Isn't that cool? Yeah. Now, it's really important to note that these stones, years ago I did a study on this, and I invite you to do the same thing. Look up what these stones represent. They represent the 12 tribes, but there is a reason God picked particular stones for each tribe. This looks really cool. Examples of these kinds of decisions were things like um, military action, the allocation of land, legal verdicts in the absence of evidence, and the choice of leaders. Those are just a few. One theory about how this worked, and there are a lot of theories, 
all right? Some put it into this occultish, I don't know what definition of something, but it was biblical and it was used by God to tell them what to do. One theory about how this worked was that it consisted of two or more lots, which a priest drew out of the breast piece. Remember, it says it was folded over to make like a pouch, which signified a positive, negative, or noncommittal answer, or indicated a particular message. And you could check out First Samuel to find more about that. According to the Kumash, which again is an orthodox commentary on the Torah, the breastplate was folded in half to form a pouch-like pocket. So Moshe was to insert a slip of parchment containing the name of God. And this name was called Urim. All right? From the word or, which means light, because it would cause individual letters of the tribal names of the breastplate to light up. And it was also called Tumim, from the word Tamim, that's where my name comes from, Tamim, which means complete or complete. Because if read in the proper order, the lit up letters provided complete and true answers to the questions that were of national importance asked of God by the Kohen Gadol. Now the Kohen Gadol had to somehow know what the combination of letters represented because it placed in a different order to mean something different unless the Ruach caused the letters to light up in such a sequence that no one could make that mistake. And there are uh, legends or teachings or comments about um, misinterpreting letters and thinking someone was you know, drunk when they weren't and, and this, the, this combination of letters if you didn't translate it right. But you know, I submit to you the Ruach was working even then. God was, was uh, guiding these, these priests to know what combination of letters meant. So they didn't make a wrong answer. So what happened to the Uriah and the Kumash? According to the Kumash, King Josiah realized that Israel was going to be conquered, so he removed it from the breastplate and hid it along with the ark containing the tablets and the anointing oil. Although the temple service continued, there was a diminished level of holiness, and the Kohen Gadal could not present Israel's urgent questions to God for a response. But as Messianic believers, we know we have access to God just as Yeshua taught his Talmudim. We are never left alone. We might choose to be alone, but it's not because he leaves us alone. And it says, quote, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. This can also be translated as, as your telling, because this is a prayer closet. All right? Your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, <laughs> I wish I could make a sign and share it with all Christianity. Don't babble on like the pagan who think God will hear them better if they talk a lot. Don't be like them because your father knows what you need before you ask him, unquote. He doesn't need a dissertation for you to introduce yourself. He already knows who you are and what you want and why you want it and even while you're praying. I submit to you, I've seen it. I don't, I know you've seen it. Carl, some of you guys may have seen it in churches that you went to. People sequestering people, getting this big, uh, highly motivated um, group of people to pray, but it's not uh, done in humility. It, it's it's uh, almost scary, it's very pagan, you know, how they pray. 
very often. Right? So you go in your closet, you go by yourself. If you have a friend you want to pray with, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. We don't typically do that as a congregation unless somebody asks to be anointed. That is Torah. If somebody wants special prayer and want to be anointed, it is their responsibility to come to the elders. I'm an elder now. I got an extra class, right? And to be anointed and pray. Yeah, I'm a member of the Medicare club now. I've got the red, white, and blue. So there, I qualify for senior discounts across the board in Sister County. Yeah, everything from Wendy's lemonade to Bell's discounts on board. So that you know, that's what we need to do, and we'll pray for someone. You know, especially like that. Otherwise, I I choose to teach and follow this. Go off on your own. That takes that extra agenda away, the possibility that you're being prideful. Right? As the new priesthood, we need to learn how to address our God. Through his grace and mercy, he shows us the way, even providing a model prayer for us to follow. Let us approach Yahweh Yeshua with as much reverence and humility as did Aharon, his sons as Kohanim, and the Levites who ministered the tabernacle. Our turn as the ministers of the next temple is coming soon. Let's be ready. How cool is that? What a thought. I'm sure most people think, yeah, yeah, right. You know, so it's like when we get there, they're like, no, that's never really going to be the way. Just wait. You know? And I can't wait to see some of you there. By God's grace, I'm, I'm one also. Just told you. <laughs> All right. Our Haftarah is out of Ezekiel 43. Now, the book of Ezekiel began when he was shown how the Shekinah, the presence of God, was withdrawing from the temple, leaving it an empty and desolate structure prone to imminent destruction by the Babylonian army. That sounds like our country. Rome is falling. This country is falling. It's important for us to realize that although God removes his presence from places, he will neither leave nor forsake those who love him as evidenced by following his commands. This is a promise that's clearly stated in the Old Testament and the great Kaddishah, some calling that the New Testament. But it's not new, it's a refreshed covenant. All right? And I listed a whole bunch of scriptures there for you. Throughout Ezekiel's career, of warning the nation of the consequences of his falling away from God, God made it clear to him that Israel, who are really all true believers, would remain his people, that he would share their exile, and that he would bring them home again. In the concluding chapters of the book, Ezekiel saw the vision, the architecture, the dimensions, the laws of the third temple, and the reinstatement of the sacrificial system. Those who follow Seventh-day Adventism don't get that. They don't believe that. Finally, he saw the vision of the Shekinah's return, the same Shekinah whose departure he had tearfully witnessed 20 years earlier. Note that it is Yeshua who will return to the third temple for his millennial reign. Yeshua is God. He is Echad, one, not a trinity. The chapter of the Haftarah opens with that vision, and it begins in the middle of the chapter with Ezekiel's vision of the altar upon which the reinstatement of the sacrificial system and the offerings that would cleanse the altar, cleanse it, prepare it for its holy path. So this passage is consistent with our Panishah, with its instructions for the tabernacle of the Kohenim, 
and the procedure used for the offerings that would consecrate them and the altar. And interestingly, for certain parts of the altar, Ezekiel uses quote-unquote symbolic names that are not used anywhere else in Scripture. Harel, literally meaning mountain of God, refers to the altar's upper four cubits. Ariel, literally meaning lion of God, to the site of the sacrificial fire atop the altar, and Azra, meaning courtyard, to the entire roof of the altar, including the walkways at its sides for the Kohanim. The use of these terms should not be a mystery to us for the Messianic Jewish believer because they all refer to Yeshua. How cool is that? He is the tabernacle, the lion of God, the mountain of God. He is all of those things. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the authors are of the opinion that Ezekiel's temple sketch is unique, presenting features not found in any of the temples actually built. What does that tell us? It's prophetic. It will be there in the Millennial Temple. The temple is in truth an ideal construction, never intended to be literally realized by, by returned exiles or any other body of people. But we will see. It gives Ezekiel's conception of what a perfectly restored temple and the service of Yahweh would be under conditions that could scarcely be thought of as ever likely literally to arise visionary origins the ideas and bodies and not the actual construction are in the prophet's mind. That's how they try to explain it away. We discuss this often that we should try to understand the concepts over specific scriptures as we learn Torah. Details we might forget, but concepts are more easily integrated and remembered. A literal construction, one may say, was impossible. The site of the temple is not the old Zion, but a very high mountain in Ezekiel occupying indeed the place of Zion, but entirely altered in elevation, configuration, and general character. What they call the Temple Mount over there now is not the Temple Mount. Right? That was a Roman fortress. So we got it all wrong. And that fits in with Yeshua perfectly. Understated, holding, biting the tongue until his full glory. Let him have their mind. Yeah, it's not the Temple Mount anymore. The Temple is part of a scheme of transformed land partitioned in parallel tracks along uh, among the restored 12 tribes with a large area in the center, likewise stretching across the whole country, hallowed to Yahweh and his service. Supernatural features as that of the flowing stream from the Temple. This stream is already there. It's already there. So it's not something that, that it's like, oh, what a surprise. It's going to be. <laughs> and not the Messianic believers who study scripture. It's unreasonable to suppose that the prophet looks for such changes, some of them quite obviously symbolic, as actually attending. Well, you know, earthly commentators and scholars can say whatever they want, but you can tell pretty much right away when you see these commentaries where their mind is and where their knowledge base is. We can easily recognize that Ezekiel's vision is not only possible, but it is prophetic. The third temple will be unique, just as he described. The terms previously mentioned that don't appear anywhere else in Scripture 
attest to the fact that the time during the third temple in which Yeshua himself will rule will incorporate characteristics consistent with his atoning sacrifice and iron rule that will follow. Again, this is something missed by Christianity. He will rule with a hand of iron. What does that mean? Well, if everybody was, he's all love, and we don't have to worry about this, because we're all forgiven, we wouldn't have to use an iron hand. Or even a flush water. Everybody be doing everything else. But they're going to be fighting until the end. The future temple would be built where it, it's actually um, a prefix is, um, is, it, is it not south of the, the Temple Mount? Well, that's what they call the, the Temple city, Mount. The city of David. Yeah. South, yeah. Southeast. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to concern ourselves with the possibility of thinking books of Ezekiel's vision because we have the description of what is to come through the very word of God. His Torah, the written and the living Torah, Yeshua HaMashiach, and we need no further confirmation. And finally, Brit Kadishah, Philippians 4, and it reads, uh, first we start with Exodus, offer up the whole ram and smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering for Adonai, a pleasing aroma, an offering made to Adonai by fire. So Shaul, Paul, refers to this type of offering as he praises the Philippians for the gifts they sent through Aphrodite, the Paphrodite. He refers to their gifts as a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice that pleases God well. And another reference to this type of offering is mentioned in Genesis, where Noah built an altar to Adonai, then he took from every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar, Adonai smelled the sweet aroma. So we must ask ourselves, what is the significance of this burnt offering? The ordinary translation in modern versions of the Hebrew is olah. The term does not mean literally burnt offering, but what is brought up or presented to the deity, in this case Adonai. The name is a translation of the Septuagint rendering, which itself, based on the descriptive phrase, often attached to olah, in the ritual prescriptions, an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's a synonym which defines the offering as complete, to be completed, perfect, or to be perfected, when it's placed upon the altar to distinguish it from the other forms of the animal sacrifices. It was the highest order of sacrifice in the Old Testament ritual. The bloodless offerings were made only in connection with it. This was a complete offering in which everything was dedicated to God. We don't know if the gifts sent to Shaul were in the form of animal, food, or money given with a pure heart. We read of other possible forms of unselfish sacrifices, such as spiritual sacrifices in the saints, as praises and prayers, also called odors, odors which are said to be acceptable unto God. That's in Revelation chapter 5. Acts of beneficence are called sacrifices with which he is well pleased. Regardless, these gifts were sent to show with pure hearts, and he reminds the people that this type of giving has significance beyond the physical recipient. Indeed, the highest level, level of dedicat in Judaism is when you give or offer something to somebody, and you don't know who the somebody is, and the somebody that's getting it doesn't know who the giver is. 
That's complete anonymity. Not knowing who it is. So there's no room for pride. There's no room for anything else if you don't know who got it. And the one who received your gift can't be embarrassed. Some people are embarrassed when people give them gifts. Right? And some who give gifts are very prideful. Right? So that's a good way to look at that. Burnt offerings in whatever form were ultimately for the glory of God, like all of our offerings should be. Shaul ends this letter praying that God fill every need of those who love God and that God receive all the glory for forever, which is a fitting conclusion to this teaching. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. And we hope that you will be able to join us next week.